Hey, this is the Brains Podcast. I'm Julian Shapiro. And I'm Cortland Allen. Julian and I have always wanted to write stories. So today we brought in two of the biggest story writers in Hollywood. They're also among the most enduring. They've made hit after hit for decades. You know Eric Kripke from his hit series, The Boys and Supernatural, where he was the creator and showrunner. And you know Mark Miller from his comics, which have been adapted into top grossing films, such as Wanted, Kick-Ass, Kingsman the Secret Service, Logan, and Captain America Civil War. Within the industry, both Mark and Eric are the biggest names behind the scenes. So in this episode, we learn their techniques for writing great TV shows and movies, and we walk through how to actually break into Hollywood. And so for me, I start with character. Uh, I think plots are a dime a dozen, um, and it's the, probably, to, in, at least in my opinion, one of the easiest things in the world to come up with plots. The voice you're listening to belongs to Eric Kripke. Um, but is that plot illuminating the character? Is it, you know, connecting you to who that person is? And so I keep saying to my writers, because, you know, I have the advantage of a writer's room. I'm never, I'm almost never a brain by myself. I'm, I'm like this talk show host with the most amazing, brilliant guests who all sit around and, you know, chat. Um, and so I'll spend out of like, well, it takes about three weeks to break a story. We'll spend easily a week and a half, two weeks just talking about the psychological makeup of the characters mm -hmm. and where we want them to go and where we want them to land and how does that match the themes. And sometimes the themes we know, sometimes they emerge from like, oh, wow, those two characters are going through the same experience. And, and, and only after you feel like you completely know where they psychologically need to go every beat, then we say, okay, well, what would be the plot scene? What would be the plot or scene to dramatize that? Yeah, that resonates. And Mark, how does that compare to your process? So I do the same thing. I sit and I, I draw something I find interesting. I always start with a painting and a drawing or something, and I'll do a, a, an image. So like Old Man Logan, for example, the Wolverine story that, that I did at Marvel. The voice you're listening to belongs to Mark Miller. I drew a picture of Wolverine as an old guy and I drew him like with no claws and I drew him holding a piece of farm equipment and then I drew a farm behind him. Then I drew this kind of barren Mad max kind of landscape, you know, and I thought, how did he get here? So what I do is I'll maybe draw four or five scenes and my subconscious puts the whole thing together. So I draw pivotal moments for me and I don't even know what the plot is, just maybe a line of dialogue or a little moment that seems really interesting, but the character, you kind of grow organically. No, it's true. If you know your characters well enough, they'll actually tell you what they need to do. Um, and you just have to, so much of it is building them in a complicated way that they can start speaking and then being quiet enough to listen that they're like, I wouldn't go into that room and I wouldn't say that dude. It's funny what Mark, what you said is, um, Scorsese has a quote, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but um, he said, uh, uh, you know, the job of a storyteller is to make your obsessions the audience's obsessions. Um, and I really love that because it like really releases you to be like, well, I really love this really obscure 1963 album, for instance, yeah. and nobody knows about it, but I'm going to put it in season three of the boys. And I'm going to ram it down everyone's face, even though literally no one in the world knows about it. And I just was like, well, yeah, no, because it's the thing I love. And so I'm going to try my passion for it will hopefully hopefully be infectious and other people will be passionate. And, and that's what you have to do. You're, you know, any of us are as as if you look at us as, you know, storytelling commodities, we're valuable to the extent of our own personal experience and passions and hang ups and 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 
And that's what ultimately that's the special sauce that people want. But I, I actually have a question for Mark. So like, cause it's a different, you know, different world. Are you, do you like the origination of ideas, right? Like, are you just like for old man Logan, for example, is it Marvel is saying to you, Hey, can you figure out something for Logan? And there's like an assignment or a question, or are you just totally cold? You're, you're walking along and, and you go, huh, Logan. And then you like, how does your origin process start? That's is so interesting, right? Because I think when my career wasn't working at the beginning of my career, it was always they would come to me and say, do you want to try a run on this? Or give me a pitch for Steve Ditko's The Creeper or something like that. You know, something I love, but it wasn't me that came to them. But what I realized was if I go to them, it works. And so much better than, than when they come to me. So there was so many times when I was at Marvel, they offered me the origin thing, you know, the uh, Wolverine's origin story. And I was like, I've got nothing, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of, I offered so many things and I turned everything down because the passion has to start with you, doesn't it? So like Wolverine, for example, you know, I just called up Joe Quesada and I said, listen, I've got this kind of crazy idea for a Wolverine story. To go back to the thing Julian said earlier, you know, that we are in this amazing moment in time for the last 20 years where the guys giving you the money to make these things grew up with comic books, you know. They're all the children of Frank Miller and Alan Moore, aren't they? They grew up with Watchmen, they grew up with Dark Knight Returns and Batman Year One. So they get the language. So it's, it's so crazy that you, you sit with producers now and you can drop names like The Boys or Preacher and they don't, it's not just that they know what you're talking about, they love it, you know. Mm-hmm. And I, I remember, I, I've always been fascinated by this. Like Superman the movie makes a ton of money in 1978 and the, the Hollywood was trying to figure out, okay, what, what is it the audience like? So they come back with Popeye, Annie, and other comic book things from the 1930s. They think, oh, they like comic strips from the 1930s. And then after Batman makes a ton of money in 1989, like crazy money in 1989, they come back with, oh, kids love Art Deck, like the shadow. <laughs> <laughs> and it actually took like to the year 2000 before they think, maybe they like comic books and they like superheroes. <laughs> And they like this amazing stuff that we also like. So thank God we're living in this time when the, the, the heads of the studio just get us, you know. Mm-hmm. I want to know what you guys think about the final seasons of Game of Thrones, because I felt a little bit let down. Eric, you were talking earlier about subversion, and you were talking about how the first thing you do is you create your characters and understand them, and then you work backwards from there in order to figure out which scenes fit them. Otherwise, they're not going to feel authentic or real. And... With Game of Thrones, like I loved the first six seasons or so. I thought the showrunners did an excellent job. But then the final two seasons, it felt like I could see the hand of the author. It felt like the characters weren't that authentic. They weren't acting in ways they normally would. They were sort of making these weird decisions because that's what the plot demanded. Because that's where the show, the showrunners and the writers wanted the show to go. And so I'm curious, you know, what do you, what do, you do when you need to reconcile how your characters would normally behave and how you want the plot to go? Um, well, first... Uh, uh like all the respect to those guys uh, because I feel how that reaction to Game of Thrones that season. Yeah. Like despite my own personal feelings that I may or may not have about it, like you feel that in your bones because I keep telling people when they're like, did you know the boys was going to be a hit? And I'm like, (laughs) I feel exactly when I'm making it, I feel exactly the same about my hits as I do about my most humiliating failures. And (laughs) And it's so scary because I, they're all the exact feeling of, wow, I've fucking done it. 
And, you know, <laughs> it was hard work, but we did it. And then, and then you put it out into the world. And sometimes people are like, yeah, we agree. And then other people are like, fuck you. <laughs> you know? And you're just like, oh my God, I'm just, I don't know. I was just trying the best I could. So, um, so, uh, and now I'm actually, the only thing that experience has given me is now when I put it out in the world, I go like, we'll see, <laughs> you know, like, I just, right. I just don't know, who knows, just sail that boat out into the water and see if someone shoots at it. Um, but, um, you know, in terms of plot, I mean, in general, if, I mean, everyone's different and, but my feeling is again, what I like, you have to be disciplined. And if, you cannot figure out a natural way that your character would make that choice, then you're not allowed to make that choice. I mean, that's the rule of the game. Um, so you have to figure out, you know, what is the other left turn? The other thing that often helps, and this is like deep in the weeds of writer writing, um, but uh, bringing in an external circumstance that you weren't counting on, um, that's surprising. You know, like you might need, you know, there's always a reason, you know, going back to Joseph Campbell, why, you know, I don't think Luke would go off onto the planet. Yeah, well, his fucking parent, uncle's dead now. So guess what? You know what I mean? Like there, there are external events that suddenly shake up and completely change your character's point of view. And so if you can't justify it, you try to find something like that, that, um, you know, that can come down literally sometimes from the sky. But if you can't ultimately, and it just feels false, and every time you read it, you feel greasy, like you can't do it. You know, you just got to, you'll come up with something better. It'll be better. Yeah, that resonates. Yeah, I mean, everybody's different, you know. Before I've written anything in the first act of, you know, be a six part comic book story or something. I'll, I'll figure out the end and, and I'll figure out my epilogue and I'll figure out everything about the end and then I'll work my way back, backwards to the beginning. I started doing that around about 2013 and I discovered I was out for dinner last night with Mark Gatish, you know, the guy who does Sherlock and Doctor Who and everything. Like Mark, Mark's an amazing writer and, and he told me that Arthur Conan Doyle did that as well, you know. So, so if you want your plots to fall into place and look as if you're super clever, and planned all these things, you know, start at the end and work your way back to the beginning. But I think if that works for you, though, I think you do it. But you, you get know? it out there, you know, you have to get it out and then you have to look at it and then you have to say, you know what, like I've seen that one bef you, before. You just have to be diligent about like, I've seen that moment before. So how do I deconstruct it? And to your point about shitty first drafts, Eric, the reason those are so important is because our brains are much better wired for identifying how something bad could become good than coming up with something good from scratch. And so if we put anything down on paper, it doesn't matter if it's bad, that's actually a good thing because then we can quickly identify the contrast. But coming up with like a, a stroke of genius out of thin air, that's sort of the delusion that amateur writers hold. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, uh, great, great is the enemy of good. And um, the, 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 even the idea that you write something bad and somehow that's a failure is so wrong and opposite of the process. Um, and, and, and people need to like, anyone who wants to be a serious writer has to understand that failure is success um, because you're able to look at it and now you know what's not working and you can work to make it better. Um, and I think people have to have that attitude. You, you have to look at like, 
you're not finishing a draft. You're surrendering it to <laughs> the weakness that you cannot make it better. And that's and the most Lottie David thing I've ever had. That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I love that because that's perfection. Yeah, you know, that's, good. that's a good. And thing. you'll never reach it, right? Like the um uh, and you have to sort of learn that those are good things. They result in better material, even to enjoy them. Like I like when I'm like, oh shit, I don't know what my act, you know, end of act two is. And, but that just means that like, okay, I need to take in art. I need to read. I need to talk to my friends. I, you know, again, it always, you can always get there, but you have to, I think it, it's, it's about loving the process instead of being tortured by the process. And I think a lot of writers are tortured by the process. Let's say where you're really proud of something you've done. Have you ever actually finished something and thought that's as good as it can, that, that, that's amazing. I've done an amazing job. You know, do you, no. do you never let yourself, you never let yourself <laughs> enjoy that moment? Never, never, literally <laughs> never, literally a hundred percent never. Um, I don't love, like I, I could count on probably two hands um, the amount of episodes of my own shit that I've watched after final mix. Um, I just, I don't, I can't watch my own, I, you know, I'm like one of those like actors, you know, and I, when I was growing up, I was like, those actors, like, I don't like to watch myself. And I'm like, what a, what a pretentious <laughs> piece of shit, but like, it, cause it's painful. Right. I don't, I only watch the mistakes and I only watch like, the flaws and so and i've seen it i've seen every given episode 300 times already that's another thing but uh but no i've never looked there's things i'm happy about and there's things that i'm proud of of course but in terms of like uh nailed it never never you know damon lindelof who did, who did lost he yeah. and i were having a pizza at the absolute peak of lost you know just that it was like everybody was talking about it. it was the number one show in america and i said you must be feeling pretty good and he was like are you kidding I can't sleep, you know, and it's, it's a nightmare. You know? Oh, yeah. <laughs> then at the other extreme, you've got like Matthew Vaughn, um, who has the most incredibly calm Zen-like thing, you know, where he, he'll phone me up and he say, man, I, I, you have to fly down to London and see the new cut. This is the greatest thing I've ever seen. So, so he has this incredible centered calm about it all. Yeah, I'll get complete. What do you, how do you react? That's a, this is a good question. What's your reaction to bad reviews? Well, everybody always says, oh, well, I don't read it, but anyone who works in the creative industries Googles themselves every day, you know, like, because you, you're looking to see if somebody's trying to destroy you or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, I mean, everybody does it. And it does take you a little while to come to grips with that, though, you know, because you do take it personally. I mean, anybody does, you know. But I think for me, somebody, here's my thing. My barometer is if somebody who normally likes my stuff doesn't like it, that will be a dagger in the heart, you know? Like, if it's somebody who has been five-star reviews for 10 years and they're like, oh, I didn't like this, that that's painful, you know, because you know that there's an honesty to that. It's not somebody who's doing right. quite or something, you know? So I, those are the hard ones. Yeah, that for me, the, uh, the hardest reviews, um, and yes, we read all the reviews, good and bad, and, um, and you know, I couldn't tell you a line from any good review I've ever gotten, but I, but I could quote a lot of the bad ones. Um, and they just stick with you. I mean, for, for me anyway, they stick with you because uh, uh, they're the ones that you 
secretly in your darkest moments that you secretly think are right and like they know that you're a fraud <laughs> you know like they know they've seen behind it and they know and you're like how did they know but they know um and so those are the ones that that's why they pierce me um because and and then of those the ones that kill me are the ones that are right um yeah, like i don't mind i don't mind a review that's like I hate this and I hate you and I hate Amazon and I hate blah. like, you're just like, whatever. It's just, it's just garbage. But somebody who points out something that you knew was a problem yeah, um, and doesn't like it as a result, that hurts because you're like, you're right, dude. You're so right. Like you want to call them <laughs> and be like, look, and you know, and every so often my wife has been very good about, because once in a while I'm like, you know, I should reply. <laughs> and they're like, do not reply. <laughs> like, back away from that computer. Um, what is your, hey, Mark, I have a quick question for you. What is, uh, changing the subject a little bit, like, so when we're talking about process, you know, and I was saying like, because I have a writer's room, right? Like, are you alone? Are you with other people? Are you using a dry erase board? Like, what is your actual you know, the mechanics of how you put your stories together. You lock yourself in a room. It's like The Shining. I mean, The Shining, the Shining is like a true story for every writer, really, isn't it? You know, so so you, you, nobody, I don't have a, the phone nearby or anything. You know, you sit and you plan it all out. It is almost like a seance. You know, you're tuning into something, you know, and you need total silence for it. So music in the background and everything, I, I, it's impossible for me. But you tune into something and, you something feels right like you just go in and you just go into that world you know you close the door you shut out the world and you and you go visit that world you know that stuff that when i was younger seemed ridiculous which is what are all the characters backstories even if they never make their way onto the page what are what is the complete rules and the details of this world even if you never see it yeah. um i used to think like what like come on you i mean you you really and now I do it meticulously. Like I, I could tell you every character's history, what their families were like, you know, because it's so, so important to know. You have to look at sometimes once you're, you know, at least when you're writing a script, you're not writing a story. You're, you're sending postcards back from that world, <laughs> you know? And, and so you actually have to be inside it. And just because, you're putting the writer focus or the camera focus on this direction. That doesn't mean that that's not a fully functioning world, that if you turned it 90 degrees to the left, you would see something else. Usually I find that where that really comes together is in dialogue. That's where you get very realistic dialogue and lived in dialogue. Like, for example, I do this all the time to the point where my other writers make fun of me. Um, you know, like one of the boys could say to the other, uh, uh, hey, let's, uh, what do you say we get out a bomb and we figure out how to blow up that superhero? Or one of them turns to the other and says, remember Baltimore? Mm. And then the other guy goes, oh shit, Baltimore. And then they just go do it, right? Yeah. And my, my, they're, everyone always laughs at me. They're always like, you're going to just have them say a city? <laughs> just, because, just because, but it speaks to history, you know? And, and that's what makes characters come alive is they're not, they weren't born the minute you start the story. They had a whole life before that, and you owe it to them to know what that is. Oh, I love that. So switching gears a bit, Eric, what did you do to build all this skill? How did you get this good? You know, I mean, look, I went to film school. I was a film school brat, and 
I'll tell anyone that, you know, there's about 10 or 15 books that will give you exactly that film school education. Um, the value of film school was I got to live in Los Angeles and I knew a bunch of people going into the business and I got to PA a lot and I got to see how sets worked. And, you know, and I would say the same for writing. Um, the first screenplay I wrote that got any kind of traction professionally it was my eighth or ninth. And I was lucky. People were like, whoa, you're like a wonderkin. You only got there, you know, on your ninth script. Uh, so you just have to feel it out. And there are good books, by the way, like, you know, um, there are good books. Robert McKee's story is solid for as much as it's good to know what the classic rules are. Just so even yeah. if you're going to deviate, know what you're deviating from, um, you know, and, uh, uh, Chris Vogler's the hero's journey is really, really good. I would actually recommend that he breaks down the Campbell hero myth and how it relates to screenwriting in a way that I think is pretty effective. My experience has been, you know, because I came from a film school and so you you get to watch it's like this this game of survivor, right? <laughs> you get to watch like people and 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 um almost to a person, um the reason they ultimately didn't get there is because they quit. Mm-hmm. Um and the ones who stuck in, they might not be doing exactly the thing they were going to do. I thought I was going to be directing comedies, you know, comedy movies. You know, you might not land where you think you're going to land, but um, if you really work, if you really, uh, you know, that ten thousand hour rule of of have you heard that? Like it's a Malcolm Gladwell. If you if you work more than ten thousand hours at any one thing, you'll be great at that thing. And I think screenwriting applies. I, I, I always worry about the over-intellectualization. Like I say, you know, I mean, I, I think Tarantino's line about not going to film school and just watching a lot of movies, you know, I, I really, honestly, I know it sounds so simple, but I think you can learn so much just intuitively. You know, you, you think, well, I like this, and then your subconscious is picking up what made it work, you know? Well, I'll, I, I do find that, like, and just because it is something really important to tell young writers to, and I totally agree with everything Mark's saying, like, it's ultimately an emotional medium. Very classic mistake a lot of young writers make is is the ability, they'll be like so deep into, well, what if, you know, what if we do and make this little change and arrange and turn this little screw this way and do that? And, and I'm always like, what's your intent here? <laughs> you know, and well, my intent is to make this person cry. Okay, well, let's focus on making that person cry. Um, and, and do it emotionally. And things don't sometimes even have to make totally logical sense. That's an important element that you really need to work a lot as a writer before you understand. Like the audience doesn't actually particularly connect with your story logically. Um, it's important, yes, and obviously you, it needs to hold together, but they connect with it emotionally. And if it's emotionally true and your character is making an emotionally honest choice, then the logic isn't always as crucial. Spielberg does this all the time. There's there's all sorts of characters that are doing things that you're like, well, hold on a minute. Would you really have done that? And but because you're so there emotionally, you 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 buy it. We've got to ask the question that everyone listening wants to hear, and by that I mean the question I want to know, which is, how do you bring it to Hollywood today? I always say to everyone that take advantage of the time we're currently living in because to try and get somebody to read a 120-page manuscript 
I mean, I, I, I've got manuscripts on my desk for my own shows and my own movies that I haven't the time to reach yet. And that's my own stuff, you know? So to get somebody to read something cold that's 120 pages is really hard. That's a two-hour commitment at the time. So what I always say to people is the way that I can look at a page of artwork and tell if somebody's a good comic artist in one page, I think you can look at a five-minute short and tell if somebody's a good storyteller. Mm. I always say we live in a time when you can put this stuff up. It doesn't cost much money at all. You could shoot it with your friends and shoot it on a phone or whatever and get a little five-minute thing up online. And then when people are interested in that, they might read your two-hour script. Mm -hmm. But then I spoke to a guy last week, you know, who just sent in a, a script cold that wrote a spec script for a TV show. I hear a lot of that, actually, you know, just send it in and he, he got lucky. But, but I think to make yourself into a little internet phenomenon is no bad thing. Mm. Yeah, that's yeah, that's really good advice. And and I would say the um, the screenwriting version of that, as somebody who staffs a lot of writers and reads stuff, is um, make sure uh, the first three pages of your screenplay are the best pages of mm -hmm. your screenplay, and that it the biggest, craziest, most mind blowing thing happens because you want you need that person. That person has a stack of fifteen scripts next to them. And they are dying to pass on your script so they can move on to the next one. So you have to give them a reason not to. You have to say, oh, you're, you have to stick around till page 10. Mm -hmm. And then you get to page 10 and go, holy shit, you got to stick around till page 20. And I'll give you like a, 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 a two quick cautionary tales. Sorry. And then I'll let us let us all go back to our days. But um, but one was um, I, I had made short films. I had done exactly what 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 Mark had said and he's right and and then like one got into Sundance and suddenly like I was getting like agents and and they were sending me out on meetings and 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 they're like great movie I'm like thank you and they were like what do you want to do next I'm like I don't know I was working on that movie um <laughs> <laughs> you know like what what have you got and they go oh okay well you know if you come up with anything call it so I actually had a month where I was the, this flavor, you know, and I, and I blew it, I blew it. And it took me, cause I just didn't have anything. And it took me two years to recover, to come up with more stuff again. And then here's the other cautionary uh, tale or some, or the best advice, which is it's a really, really hard business to break into. Um, and so any door that opens a crack go in whether you thought this was going to be your genre your plan your medium or not go um because so much of this is you know dictated by fate and again i give you an example i was sure i was going to be a comedy writer director and i was failing and failing and failing at it and because it turns out <laughs> i kind of sucked at it and um and i wrote uh, a horror movie um, to blow off steam. I, I just was so upset and I loved horror movies when I was a kid and I just wrote one and um, I named all the characters after film executives mm -hmm. and, uh, and I put it on a shelf and I wasn't going to do anything with it. And just cause it was therapeutic. And like three months later, my, my buddy who is a producer showed it to Sam Raimi, Sam Raimi loved it, showed it to his partner. It was ghost house's first movie and I was in production six months later, right? And then Warner Brothers, who I've been like kind of struggling and trying to get traction, 
come to me and they say uh, I had done, you know, some early TV with them, which I didn't think I was ever going to do. I thought I'd be in movies. And this was when TV was not fucking cool. This is when, (laughs) you know, this is when this is when you had to have some humility (laughs) to be in TV. Uh, And but they said, hey, would you like to go in TV and do something in the horror genre? Which is I'm now miles away from where I thought I would (laughs) be. Right. And I was like, well, yeah, I kind of always had this idea about urban legends and supernatural came out of that, you know? So like, you just, you do not know how it's going to go. And so the only move you can make is push as hard at every opportunity that's given to you. Um, Because if you let any of them pass by, you know, if you're like, oh, you know what, that's, that's a comedy and I'm a science fiction guy, or that's a half hour. And I was sure I was an hour guy. Um, anything you can't let any of them pass. By, by sometimes audiences know what you are when you don't know what you are as well, don't they? Like <laughs> other people can see in you what you don't see in yourself. You know, a yeah. super fast example is I met this actor one time, and he was a sweet grandfather. You know, he grew his own tomatoes and all this kind of thing. Just a lovely man, but he had a face that people like to see die in films. You know, he just. <laughs> It just had that look that you felt great when you saw somebody who you really liked kill him at the end of a movie. Like he looked threatening. And he said to me, I, I wanted to be like a hero. You know, I wanted to be John Wayne or Clint Eastwood, the guy everybody likes, you know, but people feel good when they see me die, you know. <laughs> but you made a really good career, but you know, but sometimes you have to listen, don't you, to what the audience wants from you, because they know what you're good at. Mm-hmm. All right, we'll call it there. So grateful you guys came on. Thank you. Yeah, I know. It was really fun, really fun. Um, And Mark, it was so great meeting you. Hopefully, I'll meet you in person one of these days. I know. I can only apologize for my accent, but you guys play this back. It's going to be fucking incomprehensible. (laughs) (laughs) Um, All right. Have a good day, everybody. Have a good night, Mark. Thanks so much, everybody. Yeah, thank you. If you'd like to learn more about Eric and Mark, you can find Eric on Twitter at TheRealKripke.com. And you can find Mark on Instagram at Mr. Mark Miller.